0: United, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is
1: the wrong president for our country. This American carnage stops right here and stops right
0: now. Hi, and welcome to Barely Getting By American Carnage. I'm Emma Shortis. This week... In the aftermath of a truly awful debate in which the President of the United States called on white supremacists to stand by live on TV, Chloe and I have been thinking a lot about the role of the media, and television in particular. So we've gone back to one of the most culturally significant television shows in American politics, Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing, which first aired in 1999 and played for seven seasons, and it's attained a kind of cult status in American culture. We talk about its lingering influence and how it relates to the potential collapse of American democracy. That democracy is facing one of its biggest ever tests this November, and we look in detail at a pretty horrifying article in The Atlantic about how it might fail that test. We also look back at another big test, the election of 2000 and explain the messiness of the electoral college and how the institution of slavery is still deeply embedded in the American political system. And just a little tip, if you're like Chloe and struggling with the bleakness of it all, that electoral college explainer starts about 40 minutes in. Thanks for listening. So, Chloe, I need to open this episode with a public confession, which I haven't done before, but I think it's an important thing for me to concede. And that is that I have actually never watched The West Wing.
1: You, you told me this last night, Emma, and I have to say I was incredibly surprised. One, because you kind of, you kind of gave me the impression that you had And two, because I I very much expected it of you, you know, if I, for those of you who are listening, one thing I know about Emma is that she's, you know, she's kind of a, she has been a liberal in the past. She's gone on to, you know, to partially reject her Obamaite liberalism, but she still has kind of a sentimental attachment to it. And in that sense, she is, I think, exactly the sort of person who should have watched the West Wing as a teenager. So if you didn't, I'm just, I'm, I'm honestly wondering where your politics have come from.
0: <laughs> I I honestly don't know like what happened because I am exactly the target demographic for the West Wing. You know, all my friends are watching it and I don't, I honestly don't know how it passed me by. And it just kind of got to the point where It had passed me by and then it was too late. I then became sort of overwhelmed by the task of watching, you know, seven or whatever seasons of this show. Um, and, And also that seemingly, you know, for a long time the moment had passed, that the show had kind of faded into obscurity, kind of precisely because Obama was in the White House and that kind of West Wing liberalism seemed to have one out but i i'm very much willing to concede that it is incredibly irresponsible of me to not have watched this show
1: and well i I wouldn't call it irresponsible um but i would say that yeah i think you're right and that you've missed the boat because there was a there was a period sort of at the beginning of the trump presidency where we're all told that watching the west wing was consolation against what was happening in America against this creeping authoritarianism, and that it could remind us of the best of American democracy, of idealistic liberalism. And in a way, that kind of rehashed the sentiment that was around the West Wing when it first aired in the late 90s and the early 2000s, especially when it did become kind of a an alternate universe america where george w bush never won the won the 2000 presidential election and we were happy we were still you know so sort of happily ensconced in you know this triumphant affluent third way liberal moment it was as if the clinton years had never ended and that's where i wanted to start today is with an article about an article repeating some comments from aaron sorkin the creator of the west wing where he was offering his opinion on what he would like to see come election night on November third.
0: You know, like I, th- I think that is part of the reason why me not having watched The West Wing is irresponsible, is because Aaron Sorkin has this outsized role in in the kind of commentariat of American politics. he comes up again and again, and people people listen to him. Um, so so what does he what does he have to say this time?
1: Yeah, and I think that's the direction he was coming from when he made these comments. I think it was in an interview with Variety where he said that he he doesn't think that Trump will concede, will concede defeat. I think that, you know, that's, a, that's something you want to talk about later in this episode. But Aaron Sorkin said that, you know, what if he were writing the script for the 2020 election, and I'm quoting here, for the first time his Republican enablers march up to the White House and say, Donald, it's time to go. I would write the ending where everyone does the right thing. I don't think Trump will do the right thing except by accident. So, you know, there is an acknowledgement there by Sorkin that this is very unlikely to play out as he expects. But I think one of the reasons I want to talk about the West Wing is but that for the longest time, you know, we first, we first saw it as consolation for the George W. Bush years. We've also seen it as consolation for the Trump years. But there is an increasing body of work that's suggesting that, it was not only a reflection of what people would like from democracy, but it became kind of American democracy's playbook during the Obama years.
0: Okay, so just so I've got this clear, Sorkin is imagining that he is writing the fictionalized version of 2020, which is kind of problematic in itself. That we're not dealing <laughs> we're not dealing in reality; um, we're dealing in in fantasy, which is. I guess part of the critique of, of the west wing that we're we're sort of getting at okay so he's imagining this and he's imagining republicans kind of marching up to the white house and and frog marching trump out you know that's the scales are finally shed from their eyes they've seen what an evil guy is and that they have to rescue democracy okay so this is something that we hear again and again you know we hear it from joe biden who talks about how he's friends with republican senators and and they're nice to him and he does kind of give the impression that he at least believes that should he win the election again that's a big if should he win that those republican senators who have been so obstructionist and have been supporting trump will finally have the freedom to to go back to being reasonable human beings
1: yeah, and I think, you know, and I actually went back and watched a few episodes of The West Wing last night. It was really, it was really interesting exercise because I've kind of felt like I was getting dragged under. It's so, it is a very well-written show and it's very seductive and you have to kind of, well, I personally find I have to kind of arrest myself and stop myself from being, you know, um, seduced by Alan Alder's uh, kindly Republican character in the last couple of seasons in particular. But I think... One of the things that the West Wing does there is it's it's a show that was very much about humanising politics and showing the human side of, of politicians. And its thesis seems to be that there is this core humanity and this humaneness to political actors, that they are, in general, acting in good faith when they enter politics, and that even if they do behave in, you know, venal or ways that are edging towards corruption, they can always be called back to that better nature. And I think that that is that, residual hope that is being extended to to republicans and it's something that goes against all the evidence not only of the last four years but also i would say you know the alternative historical timeline of u.s democracy where we have actually seen that beneath this glossy surface beneath the surface that's offered by shows like the west wing it has always been you know a swamp you know the swamp that trump that trump has described and so successfully a notion that Trump so successfully played on to win the presidency in 2016.
0: That's right. And I think, look, that is one of the major criticisms of the Obama administration is that a lot of the, the particularly the, the younger staffers who were, you know, like like a lot of people, like like us, I think, Chloe, kind of um, inspired and so hopeful by the election of Obama, that and they took that into the White House with them. That assumption of good faith that you were talking about and, and met with the reality of a Republican opposition didn't change that view, um, didn't, didn't change that approach to people, that, that assumption that people are generally, you know, good and reasonable and acting in good faith, despite all of the evidence before them. And some of them, I think... Brought that attitude kind of almost directly from the West Wing?
1: Um, I think that, you know, some of them directly transplanted it from the West Wing. The West Wing, like I said, I think the West Wing became a playbook. There's a terrific article by Corey Robin, a review of several former Obama staffers' uh, books that they published after the end of the Obama years, which was in Dissent Magazine. And it's extraordinary how clearly they took the lessons of the west wing as lessons for how politics is and how politics should be and it wasn't just about that you know that faith and that belief in the better natures even of their political rivals but it was about the entire conduct of politics so you know. Politics, if you read these accounts of the Obama years, it emerges as something that's you know largely conducted in speech. So you know it is the it is the plane of you know inspiring speeches like Obama gave, and like his fictional predecessor Jed Bartlett, the president in The West Wing, gave before him. It's also a highly technocratic world. It's a pro- it's a place of technical fixes to glaring social problems, and it's also a space where these you know and i should i should say you know these unelected officials assume enormous power based on little more than their you know their education and their connections and you know and just the sheer grift of being political operators so that's the view of politics that they took into the into the white house that's the view that was very much executed it seems within obama's obama's white, white house and And it is it's 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 quite I find it quite astonishing that that is still so powerful that, you know, we can then have Aaron Sorkin coming in and opining to to variety about how how he would write the 2020 election. And there seem to be people who take that seriously.
0: And I think I think there is some interesting generational politics going on there, too, because as much as I said, you know, we can criticize Biden for that kind of West Wing attitude about the good faith of political actors. He is very much a kind of of a pre-West Wing generation, you know, so he's not he's not necessarily particularly engaging with the the politics of Jed Bartlett, even though, you know, in some ways he's, I suppose, trying to to emulate them. But what we're talking about is a very specific generation of, of political operators who are now quite senior in the Democratic Party.
1: Well, we're talking about a specific generation, so we're, you know, really old millennials, so people who are a few years older than you and me, maybe, you know, sort of shading into generation, generation X. But more than a generational difference, I think we're talking about a class difference. You know, it is the difference between, between professional political operators who are coming out of Ivy League institutions who have experienced privilege and the expectation of success all through their lives and the and the political generation that has you know whose lives have been marked by insecurity and precarity who are finding their political representatives in people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad and that was another thing you know that's another thing where we i think we really need to move past this west wing view of the world because if you watch the west wing like i did last night you know the the way that politics works in the west wing is it's all about celebrating complexity but it also uses the complexity of politics and political negotiations as kind of a weapon with which to chastise idea idealists and you know, and to, to have a go at the kind of, I guess, the you know, the principled absolutes of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And that's, you know, in that sense, you know, one, I think that's wrong. I think that, you know, it's it's not correct to pretend that someone like AOC isn't a practical politician. I'd say she's the most gifted politician of her generation and one of the most effective. But it's also this also shows how the politics of West Wing liberalism, they're not fit for purpose today because we are actually dealing in a period where there are political absolutes, you know, and I would say that climate change is the big political absolute of our time.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's – that, Chloe, is what we keep coming back to, you know, just what is at stake on the 3rd of November. You know, it's not just about this kind of two-horse race between two blokes in in a normal election. This is an election about climate change and also about, you know, a potential fascist takeover in the United States.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say at this point.
0: Yeah, and that—I mean—it's that cheerful note that brings me to the article that I can't stop thinking about this week, um, which is one.
1: Yeah, and then I'm going to need you to explain that in a bit of detail because I've got to admit that I didn't get through it. It was—it was too heavy, even for me. Yeah,
0: it's it. That's totally fair enough because it is super heavy, and I—I I think that you know the publishers of the Atlantic. Kind of recognise that because it's actually it wasn't meant to be published until November, but they've brought it forward because they they're arguing that it's so urgent, um, and it is it's it's really scary. So it's called the election that could break America, and it is basically kind of laying out a scenario for what happens in November and and crucially in that period between the election and Inauguration Day in January, which it calls the Interregnum. So its basic, its basic premise is that framing the question about Trump and the election as whether Trump will refuse to leave office, which is kind of what the Biden campaign is doing, is the wrong approach. So it says that the worst case scenario is not that Trump rejects the result, but that he, and I'm quoting, he uses his power to prevent a decisive outcome against him. So the basic premise is that Trump. there is absolutely no scenario in which Trump concedes a loss. So it goes against everything we know about Trump, about his personality, to expect that he would accept the humiliation of losing an election. He's just not going to do that. And I, I have to say that I, I take that as a given as yeah. well.
1: I've got to say, you know, there's the one glimmer of hope that I've had is the suggestion that Trump might have a bit of a hissy fit on election night if he loses and, you know, decide to retreat back to his millions of dollars. But given what's happened with his tax returns this week, I think, and, you know, the possibility of his facing federal crimes, I think that's also quite unlikely. But yeah, there are there are alternatives around there. Just, you know, I guess I'm just lightening the mood, maybe. <laughs> Give
0: me hope. Uh, yeah, nice, no, nice try. I don't, I don't think it's going to work, unfortunately. Especially talking about this article because it's it's really clear in saying that he will. The uncertainty that is almost inevitable after on the third of November and afterwards is going to work in Trump's favor and allow him to hold on to power. And it's making that argument because it's it's basically saying that in-person voting, so people going to vote on the day, is going to favour Trump, partly because he's been so successful in um, politicising the kind of vote that you're doing. So polls are suggesting that Republicans, because of what Trump has been saying, don't trust mail-in voting anymore, so they're going to show up in person because Trump is indicating to them that their vote's more likely to be counted if they do that. Whereas Democrats are skewing to, to mail-in voting, and we know partly because of a global pandemic, more people are going to vote by mail than ever have before. And so this article is assuming that after Election Day, we will see a so-called blue shift. So the numbers will be potentially pretty good for Trump on Election Day, and then it will be a slow trickle of votes that that begin to, to look very good for Biden. And, so, and that's happened before. It happened in Florida in 2018. It's happened in other elections. But what this article is saying is that Trump can use that. He's already setting up to use that to sow chaos and to, to basically create a scenario where they can – they by they I mean the Republicans can challenge results they can challenge the validity of mail-in ballots for various reasons much like Florida in 2000 but also that he may be able to do things because he set up this narrative of fraud and an election being stolen you know that the only way he can lose is if the election is stolen um where potentially we'll see scenarios like you know viral social social media footage of so-called election fraud and then you know seeing um The author describes them as people adorned with their Second Amendment rights descending on post offices or polling places, and then Trump having reason, as he has done before, to do things like declare an emergency and say, I have to send in the National Guard, we have to shut down this particular post office, this particular polling place because of this danger. And what this article does really convincingly is lay out the sort of cascading effect of that. Because we're dealing with time limits, so for example, the Electors, so the people who actually appoint or elect the president through the Electoral College, have to be appointed in place by the 14th of December. In an environment of extreme pressure around election fraud and votes, not all votes being counted, the states actually have a constitutional right to appoint those electors as they see fit so we may see a scenario of swing states controlled by republican state houses using their constitutional ability to appoint electors
1: the first thing that jumps out at me about that is you're talking you, you mentioned before that the atlantic has brought forward its publication of this article and i'm really i'm quite struck by that because i know that last week we spoke about the new york times and you know it's in a sense it's it's kind of the ir- the irresponsibility of its reporting in the past and it's persistent both sides ism but this seems to be to me to be an instance and it's not the first time that the atlantic has done this is uh, it's it's an example of a publication you know performing real public interest journalism and you know while i admit that i didn't get through the article because i found it quite re- genuinely upsetting you know this is about the press serving its role in informing people about a democracy that is very clearly in peril and, you know, alerting people to the possible consequences of that. Which leads me to my second question is, what are liberals and the left doing about this? Is, are there moves to organise against this, you know, this, I guess this Republican onslaught on the demo- the democratic system?
0: I think I think there are, um, and it's practical things like Biden having a legal team ready to go, kind of trying to learn the lessons of Florida 2000 and having those legal arguments ready to go. I think the the kind of scary thing about that, and and this article kind of gets to it, is that there isn't a playbook for this. How do you how do you counter these kind of efforts to potentially steal an election? Like this is what we are talking about. St- completely destroying American democracy how do you how do you fight that in a way that doesn't involve violence you know no I don't think anybody has an adequate answer to that question um, and that's I guess that's to be fair that's not what this article is trying to do this article is trying to let to basically convey the gravity of the situation that the United States is more than likely facing. But I have seen a lot of articles, Chloe, that are you know the the headings are kind of like, "What do we do if Trump do, does this? What how what's the playbook?" And I, I don't I don't think anybody has an adequate answer. I'm not I mean I'm not pretending that I have the answer, um, and and that's the kind of terrifying thing is that this article is laying out a very convincing scenario, but there isn't a, a kind of convincing scenario alongside that of how to counter it.
1: And I guess to to bring this full circle, I guess, you know, Aaron Sorkin, him, you know, him writing his script for 2020, we know that's not how it's going to play out. And I think that potentially we are seeing a point at which, you know, that those liberal delusions are finally being shed. So, you know, if Biden is, you know, carefully preparing his legal team to contest this, contest any moves by Trump and to contest them hard, then that's all to the good. But, and this is, you know, absolutely no consolation because I I don't do consolation, do I? But it also, what you're saying also reminds me of a problem that I think is, is besetting liberal democracies across the Western world, which is this kind of institutional lockout for, you know, and I'll broadly call them liberals and leftists. What we're discovering is that conservatives and right-wingers they are much more adept and they are much more willing to use the instruments of political systems and the instruments of the state to get what they want and we have a situation where you know institutionally we have we have on the one hand a liberal elite class that is having to accommodate itself to that situation that you know seems totally unprecedented to them and they don't really have the coordinates for how to deal with that we also have active left movements that not for want of trying. I mean, you know, the Corbyn movement in the in the UK is a good example, so is the Sanders movement in the US. So not for want of trying, but they have no effective political power. So you really do have to wonder where that organized resistance and that resistance that's going to be using those constitutional instruments, those legal instruments, to resist what Trump is clearly, you know, going to the, the opportunities Trump is clearly going to take in this interregnum period. You really have to wonder if it's there or if it will be capable of, you know, capable of of effective resistance if this scenario plays out. One of the things that really strikes me when I think back to previous elections is how much our reactions to them have been governed by you know, what we now know as the 24-hour news cycle. I'd probably call it the you know, several thousand-minute news cycle these days, given the rate at which I update my, my Twitter feed. I thought, going back to the 2000 election, which is something that I know Emma, and I know that anyone who has listened to the podcast previously will understand, she regards as quite a critical moment in, US, in the history of US democracy. I thought we might actually try and, try and untangle exactly what happened on that day because I think a lot of people will be familiar with the aftermath and the, the contest over Florida that happened in the Supreme Court. But um, I guess my question for you is how, how uncertain were people about that outcome on the day of the 2000 election?
0: Very uncertain. So so actually, as election day dawns on the 7th of November in 2000, the polls were neck and neck. The election was too close to call between Gore and Bush. And I think, Chloe, we'll, we will come back to a discussion of polling um, later in the season. But it's so close um, that it's it's clear, I think, early in the evening of election day, before even polls have closed, that the election is going to come down to the state of Florida and its 25 electoral college delegates. The major networks, so things like NBC, um, CNN, actually call Florida for Al Gore at about eight o'clock in the evening so relatively early this is eastern time based on exit polls so as people are leaving the polls in florida they're being interviewed about who they vote for based on those polls the major networks call florida for gore their modeling then suggests that because he's won florida he's going to win the electoral college vote and therefore the presidency
1: that i mean. That confidence really strikes me, given the the age of uncertainty that we're living living in now. how did how did Republicans react? Did they think that was premature?
0: They sure did. Um, they did not react very well and, and started calling, in fact, calling the, the networks, saying they had called Florida too early. And they, they had. Republicans were right in this because those networks had made that call before polls in Western Florida had even closed. So people are still voting. And Karl Rove, in particular, who, who people might recognize as a very close, confident and advisor of um, George Bush, in fact, called somebody at Fox News. And Fox News starts hedging around Florida and the other networks soon follow because there are questions over the reliability of exit polls and the kind of sampling that they do.
1: What that, that makes me wonder about is what it would have been like to be an American voter in 2000, you know, to, to come up with kind of a mental picture of what it would be like to be in 2000 when, you know, when news was still very much dominated by network television and to be thrown into that sort of uncertainty. So this is all going on, all going on through the course of that night in, in November 2000 at What point do people start sort of saying, oh, maybe Bush has won this?
0: Well, that's the interesting thing, Chloe, I think when you talk about uncertainty, sort of early in the evening, people are are pretty certain, as I said, you know, the networks are calling it for Gore. So a lot of people are going to bed thinking that Al Gore is the next president of the United States. It's not until about 2 a.m. that in that morning, the morning of the 8th of November, that Fox actually flips Florida and says, no, we're calling Florida for Bush. And then most of the other major networks follow. So this is happening in the middle of the night when like most people have kind of given up and gone to sleep thinking. Gore's the president.
1: Okay, so what's happening behind the scenes? What's happening uh, between Al Gore and and George W. Bush?
0: So, behind the scenes it's been called by the major networks for Bush, so Al Gore calls Bush to concede the election over the phone. But he doesn't do it Publicly in his allotted time slot. So, you know, usually the election candidates kind of get wheeled out, someone makes a, conspe- a concession speech, and then, you know, the winner follows to make their victory speech. But Gore doesn't do this publicly because since he's called Bush, the margins are shrinking again. And one of the major news outlets, um, Associated Press, in fact, hasn't called Florida. So, Gore then speaks to Bush on the phone again
1: and takes back his concession. Wow. That would be one hell of a phone call to listen to. Does the White... Oh, no, no, it wouldn't be the White House. But do they still record uh, presidents presidents and presidential candidates speaking?
0: No, they don't. There are are some kind of, uh, I guess, oral histories of that phone call. And apparently um, it was rather terse, as you can imagine. It was a pretty short call. Um, And then by sort of 4 a.m., because those margins are so close... Gore, actually, the Gore team starts sending lawyers to Florida and Bush follows.
1: Good evening. Just moments ago, I spoke with George W. Bush and congratulated him on becoming the 43rd president of the United States. And I promised him that I wouldn't call him back this time. So I guess that's what kicks off this whole debacle and the contestation of the election, the election result. And we know how That ended. Ended up. It ended up. You know, obviously falling in favor of George W. Bush, but that went on for quite a while, didn't it? It did. Thirty six days. That's um, that's a long time, and it feels like that would be an even longer time in twenty twenty if we're looking at, as we are, uh, an upcoming presidential election that's probably going to be a decisive one in American history.
0: Yeah, it actually makes me feel physically ill thinking about a similar scenario playing out this time around. Um, so what I guess that that 36 days is now, of course, like really condensed down into a couple of really important um, events and and. A sort of simplified timeline. It is super complicated, but but basically what happens is kind of around election day and the day after. So by this time, the margin is so slim that it, an automatic mechanical recount is triggered. So basically the ballots get fed back through the machine to, to check them again. And that automatic recount Reduces the margin from about 1700 votes down to 327. So the margin is even slimmer. What happens then is Gore is actually allowed to request a statewide manual recount. So that's people using hands and eyes to do to recount those ballots.
1: Which is what we do as per normal in Australia. That's, I think, a really important difference between our electoral process and what's clearly happening in the US. Yeah,
0: totally. Um, And I, I guess kind of linked to that is that Gore's allowed to request this manual recount, but he has to do it county by county. He can't just say to the whole state, I want you to do a recount. He's got to contact each county and there are 67 counties. What the Gore team decides to do is actually request manual recounts in only four of those counties where some of the biggest discrepancies were.
1: Why did they make that decision? Because to me, it seems obvious that you'd ask for recounts in every... you'd request them of every county, Right.
0: Yeah, I think in in hindsight, that is absolutely the thing that they should have done. Um, they didn't for a number of reasons. I think they wanted a result fairly quickly. The four counties that they chose were, as I said, where the most obvious and significant problems in voting had arisen. But, you know, from a strategic point of view, they were also counties that lean heavily democratic. So it was, it was a strategic choice, but they also, I think, saw it, the Gore team genuinely saw it as the... I guess the fairest approach to dealing with this and resolving it quickly, but it left them open to a lot of criticism from the Bush campaign, of course, around you. You know, you only want to count some of these votes. So, so Gore kind of lost the messaging early on.
1: Okay, and can you can you explain a little bit about why the result wasn't clear? I mean, you mentioned before that I think one of the one of the recounts had the margin go from seventeen hundred votes to three about three hundred. That's a massive discrepancy. Why, why does the system allow these huge fluctuations in the counts?
0: Well, because the system is a complete mess, basically, it's just a total disaster. So each county basically decides how people are going to vote down to designing the ballots. So you don't get a consistent ballot across the state or the nation. Every, Every county has a different one. So for example, in Palm Beach County in Florida, they had these things called butterfly ballots, which kind of opened like a butterfly's wings, but were set out in a kind of graphic design nightmare so that people were basically thinking they were voting for Al Gore but because of the way it was formatted the the little oval that they filled in was actually the oval for Pat Buchanan and not Al Gore. In a place called Duval County um, around 22,000 people accidentally cast more than one vote for president so they did things like Because again, this ballot was confusing, they sort of ticked the box or coloured in the little oval for Al Gore. But then, also because it was confusing in the write in section, they wrote the name Al Gore as well. And those votes weren't counted, they were called um, overvotes because they recorded more than one vote. In other counties, they used punch hole ballots where you know you use a machine to punch a hole through a card next to your preferred candidate's name. A lot of those machines didn't work so the hole punch didn't go all the way through it didn't dislodge the little bit of card enough and they were called hanging chads so there's still kind of a little bit of paper left or a pregnant chad where it's just been kind of dimpled um and the automatic counting machines don't recognize those votes because they don't recognize the full the the hole in in the ballot um so this is the kind of disaster that we're talking about, and the, and the inconsistency, and the estimates vary, but but overall there was something like 175,000 overvotes, so where um, more than one vote is recorded on a single ballot, and undervotes, which is like a hang chad where it hasn't recorded a vote for president. So it's absolutely a confusing
1: mess. It's yeah, and it's really interesting to hear about that sort of the, that level of technological detail that can effectively bar people from exercising their right to vote. And I know that elsewhere on the podcast, we're going to talk about the structural and systemic factors in voter disenfranchisement, which overwhelmingly affect Latina and black voters. It's, you know, I guess what this is sort of adding up to for me is a picture of American democratic processes, which aren't about maximizing a person's ability to vote. So, you know, it must be must be uh, 10 years ago or so, I did a bit of work with the Australian Electoral Commission, you know, counting ballots. And that, you know, my experience of that was definitely that all the rules are geared towards a generous interpretation of what a voter is trying to do on a ballot paper. And that can include, you know, writing swear words and drawing obscene pictures on their ballot papers. But it is actually about making sure, you know, really, really endeavouring to make sure that their vote is counted and is attributed to the party or the person that they're voting for. So it's just, it's just, it's really, it's a blocker. On people voting, right?
0: Yeah, it absolutely is, and that—that that is the way I think it is intended. I think that you know there were certainly arguments at the time that there should be that really generous interpretation of these votes. That you should look at voter intent. You know, if somebody has filled in the little circle next to Al Gore and also written the name Al Gore, their intent is clear and should be interpreted that way. But that's basically what the the court battles over this election came down to. It was about. Trying to set standards for the recount and and having extremely complicated legal arguments about that standard. So so Gore basically sued for a, for a manual recount. As I said, in, in a few selected counties, he lost a case in the Florida Circuit Court. It then goes to the Florida Supreme Court. This is by the eighth of December. So so we're 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 moving forward in time. So the Florida Supreme Court orders a recount of about sixty thousand. Under votes in a in a four to three decision, and by this time we're also sort of pinging back between the circuit courts, the Florida Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court of the United States, so the federal federal Supreme Court. On the twenty sixth of November, the, the Florida Secretary of State actually certified the result. So she her job is to to legally certify the result in Florida. She does that with a five hundred and thirty seven vote victory to Bush. Um, that. Margin doesn't count votes, recounted votes from Palm Beach, because they had arrived two hours after a kind of arbitrary deadline that she set. Um, Miami Dade, the county of Miami Dade, had in fact stopped its recount, partly because the week before there had been a riot in in the offices there, where it looked like kind of concerned voters had had come in to to. F- basically fight against a recount that they saw as unfair that was being done on partisan grounds. And, in fact, turns out that most of those... um Young white guys in ties were Republican congressional staffers and aides um, who had kind of manufactured this. And, and the count in Miami-Dade is actually stopped um, partly because of that, but partly also because of the pressure of, of court deadlines. Because we're racing towards having to have this election finalised under federal law.
1: Okay, that's what's happening locally in the, in the sort of the Florida courts. I guess this all culminates in the US Supreme Court's decision. So what happened there? I think by now we're sort of early December, so well past a month since the election day.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so, so the Supreme Court is is hearing this case, which in itself is really controversial that the Supreme Court would intervene in, in a state electoral process. Um, by the 12th of December, though, the um, the Supreme Court has come down with a decision so in a 7-2 in a to two vote, the Supreme Court had ruled that the recount process, so that the way that votes were being recounted across these different counties, was inconsistent. And so it violated the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which gives a right to equal protection. So that's a fairly clear outcome in a 7-2 to two division. But the most important decision that the Supreme Court brings down on the 12th of December is that no alternative method of recount, so so a method that satisfies the equal protection clause, no satisfactory way of doing that could be established in a timely manner. And that's a five to four decision. So effectively, as I've said many times, one Supreme Court justice decided to stop the recount as it was, meaning that George Bush, as certified by the Florida Secretary of State, has won Florida and therefore won the presidential election.
1: I guess the obvious question that comes to my mind there is, you know, we we do understand now, especially given the events of the last few years, it's, it's very clear that the Supreme Court is, regardless of its its nominal position, it is a heavily politicized body. You know, a part of the big Republican project, and part of the you know the reason why Republicans continue to back Trump despite his you know many, it's just utter egregiousness. Is because they see this as an opportunity to win the Supreme Court for a generation. Was was there politics involved? Was there part you know was there partisanship lurking under the surface of that Supreme Court decision?
0: I, I don't even think it was lurking under the surface. I think it was pretty apparent to to everybody at the time. So so that five four vote fell very clearly um, along conservative and, and so called liberal the liberal justices. The key vote that that one justice that turned it, it is, I think, widely accepted to be Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was appointed by Ronald Reagan as a conservative justice. And and there are some really interesting oral histories um, that that tap into the the clerks of the Supreme Court who were kind of horrified at the, the partisan way that this plays out in the Supreme Court. And I think two thousand for a lot of people marks a kind of realisation, I think, Chloe, of exactly what you're talking about, that the court is basically entirely partisan. You know, it has never been above politics in the way that it was um, supposed to be. It has always been a political body. But this intervention in 2000, is completely unprecedented and, and the, the dissenting judges were horrified and wrote down their horror about the way that this decision would completely undermine confidence in the Supreme Court.
1: Okay, but set I guess setting partisanship aside, does anyone have a good measure of what would have happened under a fair, a reasonable and a generous recount?
0: Look, I think that's really hard to tell. There were some studies done by, particularly by media organisations in, in the aftermath of the election. Um, it's worth saying that Gore won the popular vote, the, the national popular vote, by about half a million votes. But those studies of Florida in particular suggest that with the selected recount that Gore requested, that, that kind of for, in four counties, Bush would probably have won by a, a slightly bigger margin than, than he did in the end. Um, studies also show that a full statewide recount, which Gore never requested, um, he Gore might have won by a few hundred votes. So again, by a very slim margin. But what those studies, I think, don't take into account, and this is this is tapping into something that we will talk about again, is the Massive and systemic disenfranchisement of predominantly black voters in Florida that happened particularly in the lead up to two thousand under Republican Governor Jeb Bush, and that is still going on. Um, so, so it's not. I think about in Florida in two thousand. It's not just about counting the votes that weren't counted, which of course is is extremely important. But it's also about the votes that were never cast in the first place. <music>
1: I'm probably not alone in being at once sick of electoral college explainers, but also I kind of can't get enough of them because it is intensely complex. So I thought I'd ask Emma a few questions about how the electoral college works and more particularly where it comes from. So why we have this holdover from, I think, the 18th century, still such an active presence in in American politics. So Emma, tell me, take your time. Can you tell me about how what the Electoral College is and how it works?
0: Sure. It is um, completely mystifying, and I find myself having to practice explaining it because it is so ridiculously complex, but I'll try and simplify it as much as I can. So the Electoral College is is basically the system that elects the president and the vice president of the United States. They, they aren't elected by popular vote. So when people vote... For the president, what they actually do is on a state by state basis, they, they vote for individual delegates who then cast their vote for president. So each state gets the same number of electors as it has representatives in Congress. So that includes House of people in the House of Representatives, at, plus the two senators. So those delegates from the state that we're talking about, be it Florida, Iowa, New Hampshire, or whatever, they then elect the president. Generally speaking, in line with the popular vote of their
1: state. Okay. So this is this sounds to me like it's a very particularly American solution to an old problem of democracies and of mass democracies as they were developing through the 18th and the 19th century. I'm probably doing a bit of a giveaway here. I do know a little bit more about the Electoral College than than I let on at first. So, you know, what we saw across the Western world in the 18th and the 19th centuries were these movements towards increasing political participation by ordinary people, by ordinary citizens, in fact. And tell me if I'm right, the... The electoral college is kind of putting some intermediaries right between them and power.
0: That yes, that is exactly what the electoral college is trying to do. So in 1787, the Constitutional Convention in America is having exactly those conversations, Chloe, about how to elect a president without the the new system, the new republic, descending into what they would have framed kind of roughly as a, as a mob rule or, or rule by by the majority. So the, the founding fathers, as they are known, didn't think that a direct election of the president was an, op- was an option for exactly that reason. They basically didn't, didn't trust the people, in this case, basically, you know, white property holding men, to, to use that vote responsibly, you know, that they would be susceptible essentially to kind of populism. But the other thing that, that is going on at this time is that foundational stain on the United States of America, which is slavery. So the Electoral College is born out, essentially, of of an effort first to to avoid this kind of mob rule, but also to preserve the power of southern slaveholding states. And this was based on a calculation around basically population numbers. So so northern states where slavery is legal has high population of, of white people who will be able to vote. Southern states with large slave populations have a much smaller number of white people who are allowed to vote. So southern states, the, the members of the constitutional convention who are coming from those slaveholding states and are interested in preserving that institution come up with the electoral college effectively as a kind of compromise a way of preserving their power in the union
1: okay so you mentioned those calculations how did those calculations work in the past because i think uh, so black slaves they weren't accorded the same calcul the same weighting say as white free men is that that's right isn't it
0: yeah, that is right. The the um, African American enslaved people were not counted as as full people, and and one of the the legacies of that is something called the Three Fifths Compromise. So, because of those mostly Southern white slaveholders who were worried about population numbers and how that's going to affect their power and things like how many representatives they get in Congress they come up with this elaborate mathematical formula which allows them to count enslaved people as three-fifths of a person. So they maintain their power through population without granting any kind of real political power, of course, to enslaved people or, again, putting at risk the system of slavery because at this time there are strong abolitionist arguments. There There are people arguing... Um, passionately against the institution of slavery and there is a very real fear on the part of southern Southern whites that slavery will be outlawed. And so all of these contortions around the electoral college, around the three-fifths rule, are designed to preserve their power and to preserve the institution of slavery. So in
1: a very real sense, the electoral college is one of those legacies of slavery that is still with us today and that we are receiving persistent and necessary reminders of every day, whether it is... Through the toppling of statues or through mass protests associated with the Black Lives Matter protests. So, Emma, how do those cal- cal- calculations work today? So, I mean, guess how is the population weighted and is that fairly representative of people across US states? In a word, no. Um, and that's
0: a problem not just with the Electoral College, but but with representation in Congress, in, in the House and in the Senate generally, where um, really popular states like California have kind of the same amount of senators, for example, as much less popular states like somewhere like Iowa or Ohio, for example. And that's why in that's why when it comes to presidential elections, we tend to focus on very specific states because a place like California will reliably go um, Democrat and, and has a number of representatives and also electoral college votes that aren't necessarily reflective of its population. And it's the reason that places like Florida and small states are so crucial to the election. And I think it's important to say that the that system tends to advantage Republicans who have failed really to win the popular vote for a number of elections now. As we know all too well, for example, Donald Trump lost the popular vote by a significant margin, but he won the electoral college. And so for Trump supporters, the Republican Party more generally um, their their interest lies in preserving that system in preserving the electoral college and and i think it's worth going back to the fact that 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 political interest again finds its origins in racism
1: and i think it's the case isn't it that republicans have been much more i suppose on the front foot in terms of preserving that advantage so through say and this you know this applies not just to the electoral college but to the electoral system more generally in terms of maintaining and preserving those um, those borders and those head counts that will advantage them when it comes to these contests that's right isn't it
0: yes i think that's absolutely fair it's also reflected in voter suppression in again in crucial states like florida where republican controlled houses which um, essentially control the kind of system of elections do things like white people from voter rolls they make huge efforts to disenfranchise people or to stop people um, notably for example former felons from being re-enfranchised from from getting their vote back after they've committed what is often a very minor crime that has been deliberately designated as a felony with voter suppression in mind
1: and i think voter suppression is certainly something that we want to come back to as we get closer to the actual election date One more question to you, because this seems, you know, this is manifestly a ridiculous system in a modern democracy. It's one that is very much a historical holdover and one that bears the taint of slavery and of American racism. Are there serious efforts to abolish the Electoral College? Yes, yes, there 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 is a,
0: a serious effort to do that, and and there has been really since since the beginning. Again, coming from abolitionists who recognise this system as inherently racist, um, and and those efforts continue today. Whether Joe Biden, should he win the election, pursues them, I think is another question altogether. I think the fact that Joe Biden was nominated reflects a desire on the part of the the party, at least, to to continue the. American system in the way that it is to to tweak it and to try and make it a little bit more fair and focus on things like the enfranchisement of voters. But whether we would see actual systemic change and and the reform of the Electoral College, I think, under a Biden administration is, is fairly unlikely. Thanks for listening to Barely Getting By American Carnage. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, don't forget to sign up to our newsletter, This week we're looking closely at Trump's relationship with television. There's a subscription link in the show notes.